I'm Pastor Richard Gamble, and the following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Bastrop, Louisiana. To find out more about First Baptist Bastrop, go to www.firstbastrop.org. That's www.firstbastrop.org. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. This morning we're looking at verses 1 through 11, Matthew 21, 1 through 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one of the Pew Bibles there, and it's page 775 in the Pew Bible, page 775 in the Pew Bible. And If you don't have a Bible of your own, please take the Pew Bible as our gift to you. Everybody have a copy of God's Word, so take that and use it. Matthew 21, 1 through 11, of course, uh, this is different than what we've been doing, right? So we've been going through Deuteronomy, but it's Easter, so we need to take time to we'll put Deuteronomy aside for a couple of weeks and focus in on Easter, because Easter is the most important Christian holiday, right? Easter is more important than Christmas. We, we tend to put more <laughs> emphasis on Christmas, but, uh, you know, not even all the Gospels cover the birth of Jesus, but all of the Gospels talk about the resurrection of Jesus because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most important. Paul says, I gave to you what is of most importance, what was delivered to me, that Christ died for our sins in accordance to Scripture. He was buried and he was raised again in accordance to the Scriptures. That is the most important message of the Christian faith. So, we're going to stop and pause on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Today we look at Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. And, uh, you know, today is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. And, and Palm Sunday typically celebrates, it's celebrated as the first day of Passion Week. And so, as we begin this week, this week is called Passion Week. It was the last week of Jesus' life on earth. And so scripture, again, here are the Gospels, uh, they give more, more pages to the, the, the last week of Jesus' life. They give more, put more emphasis on the last week of Jesus' life than they do the other 30 years of his ministry. And, and so this is an important week, and so we, we look at that. But Palm Sunday kind of kicks off Passion Week, that last week of Jesus' life here on earth as he's preparing to go to the cross to be crucified for our sins and then, of course, resurrected on Easter Sunday. Uh, as we, we consider the triumphal entry, that's what it's, what's, it's labeled in your Bible, right? The triumphal entry. Uh, that's what it's called. As Jesus, he comes in on that, that Monday or that Sunday, uh, that first day of the week, uh, we have here, it records for us that he, he came in, and we read it earlier from Luke's gospel. He, he goes in, and he has a, a donkey brought to him, a young colt, never been ridden on before. And as Jesus enters in Jerusalem, he is mounted on this young colt, this donkey. And as he is coming in, it's a celebration, right? People are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And there's this wonderful celebration. And so we label that in the Bible. The Bible doesn't label it that, but, but we have labeled that in the Bible. Translators have labeled that in the Bible as the triumphal entry. But the question that we have today 
and that I want to put forward to you, is it a triumphal entry or a tragic entry? Is what's going on here, is it triumphant or is it tragic? Well, I want to suggest to you that it's the latter. Even though there's this wonderful celebration going on, as I read earlier, Jesus, while the crowds are celebrating, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus looks upon Jerusalem and he weeps. He weeps. And let me just read that again, Luke 19, 41 through 44. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, saw Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground. You and your children within you and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Even as the celebration is going on, Jesus weeps saying, you don't get it. You don't get it. You don't understand what's taking place. For a view of the Jews, some of his closest disciples, Jesus' entry truly was triumphant because they saw Jesus for who he was. Yet for the many, it was a tragic entry. And you know, it's the same for us today. It's the absolute same for us today. Dear friend, Jesus' entry into your life is only triumphant if you receive him for who he is and what he has done for you, not for who you make him out to be. We need to make sure we get that. Jesus' entry into your life is only triumphant if you receive him for who he is, the Son of God. And what he has done for you, died on the cross for your sins, raised for your justification, and not for who you make him out to be. Not for all the other things you want him to be. Not for all the things you make him. We've got to receive Jesus for who he is. And so today as we, we look at our passage here, I want to show you three reasons Jesus' reception is tragic. Three reasons that Jesus' reception is tragic as it's revealed to us here in the text. As Jesus enters into Jerusalem, while it was why it was tragic for Jerusalem, and also why it may be tragic for you. So I want you to ask yourself this question as we go through this. I want you to ask yourself this question: How 
have I received Jesus? How have I received Jesus? Now, if you found your place there in Matthew chapter 21, please stand with me in reverence to the reading of God's holy word. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a coat with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says, to, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This p- took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. And others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds they, that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he had entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we read our text today, Lord, we thank you for your holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And Lord, we pray that you will write its eternal truths upon our hearts. Lord, open our eyes, open our ears, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, the message of this text. Help us to understand what's going on here and how this is a a tragic entry. And Lord, let us not make the same mistake that the people of Jerusalem made. But Lord, let us see Jesus for who He is and for what He has done. Let us receive Him as our Lord and Savior. These things I pray in Christ's name. Amen. And you may be seated. So let us start at the beginning of our little episode here, this little event that's taking place, this first day of Passion Week, as Jesus enters into Jerusalem for that week before the Passover. Uh, Look what it says there in the first few verses here as Jesus comes into the city now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives then Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them go into the village and in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her 
untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. Now, I want us to, to note here, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I want us to note here that Jesus is in control. Right? He is in control of this situation. He knows what needs to be done. He is following the will of his Father. His Father has orchestrated all of this. All of this is coming in fulfillment of the Word of God that was spoken hundreds of years prior to Jesus' coming. Right? All of this is fulfilling. God is in control, and as God is in control, Jesus is in control because Jesus is God, the very Son of God. He is in control of this situation. He knows what's taking place. He is sovereign Lord. Jesus is in control. But now, as Jesus does all of this, this has a pur purpose. This, there's symbolism that's just coming out of, of what Jesus is doing with this donkey colt. Notice what verse 4 says. This took place to fulfill what the prophet, what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a beast uh, mounted on a donkey on a colt the foal of a beast of burden so here's a, a prophecy that was spoken 500 plus years prior to jesus coming now it's being fulfilled now jesus is coming into jerusalem mounted on a donkey a beast of burden now when we think about a king entering into a city, a lot of times we think of a king on a mighty stallion, right? On a mighty stallion, on a war horse. He, he comes in excellence. He comes in great dignity and pride. He enters into a city. That's how Roman emperors would enter into their cities. They would enter in on a great mighty war horse, a stallion, the finest one in all of the land. They would be above everyone else. But Jesus doesn't take that approach. Jesus comes and he is mounted on a donkey, not just a donkey, on the colt of a donkey. Now, Matthew is the only gospel that mentions the two. You have the mother, the, the female donkey, the mother, and then the colt with it. And the mother was brought along because if you have ever tried to get a baby colt to go along without its mama, that, that's kind of difficult. And so they brought the mother along to kind of help the colt along. But, but Jesus, he gets on the colt, the one that has never been ridden now again jesus is getting on a horse that hadn't been broken and there's no rodeo going on jesus is sovereign he is in control he has authority even over this beast of burden he is the very son of god who says to the winds and the waves be still and they settle down and he says to the colt of the donkey be still and let me ride you, and he's still, and he lets him ride him, right? And, and so Jesus is in control. He is sovereign over this situation. But as he does this, there's, there's symbolism here. Because if you go back to the Old Testament and you begin to, to read through the Old Testament, you do find that occasionally kings would ride in on a donkey. 
But when they come riding in on a donkey, they are not coming in as a mighty warrior, but they are coming in as a prince of peace. We see this, for example, in Solomon's ordination. King Solomon, you remember, the son of David, and uh, his brother had thrown this big feast, acting like he was going to be the next king, but David said, no, 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 Solomon's going to be the next king. He is God's chosen to be, he is God's chosen one to be anointed as king after me. And so uh, King David makes Solomon his son king and gives orders for Solomon to be ordained after him as king. And then so 1 Kings chapter 1 verse 33 and King David said to, uh, to them, Zadok, Nathan, and Benaiah, Take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon ride my, uh, have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon. Let Solomon ride on my own mule. Again, this beast of burden, not the mighty war horse, not the stallion, not the king's war chariot, right? But bring him on my mule, my beast of burden. You see, this indicates a humility in the king. The king is coming humbled, not in war, not in pride, not in arrogance, but he's coming to his people in humility and in peace. In peace. He is not coming as the conquering king to conquer a nation. He is coming in peace. He is the prince of peace. And that's what we see here. As Jesus comes in to Jerusalem, he's not coming as the mighty warrior prince ready to conquer all of Israel's enemies, right? Not to conquer Rome and, and throw them out, but he is coming as the prince of peace to bring peace to his people. But is that how the Israelites see him? Is that what they see in Jesus? As we look at, as we go on through the text there, look in verse 6 and, and 6 through 8 there, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks. They put on both because they didn't know which one Jesus was going to ride, so they just put their cloaks on both animals. And he sat on them. He sat on their cloaks. And we know that he sat on the, the younger, the colt, uh, as he, he went. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. In other words, they're recognizing Jesus as king. Because again, if you go back to the Old Testament, this is what they did for kings who would come. For example, again, we go to uh, 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13. This is when Jehu was ordained as king over Israel, the northern kingdom, after the, the separation of the two kingdoms. Then, in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under Jehu, on, under him, under Jehu, on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Jehu is king. And so that's what the people of Israel, as they're, or the people of Jerusalem, as they're coming out to Jesus, I mean, they have been mesmerized by Jesus and all that he has done for 30 years, um, excuse me, for, for three years, right? Three years. Jesus has been doing ministry throughout Israel and Galilee and, and in Judea and Jerusalem area and even Samaria there. He, he has been 
amazing people by his wonderful works of the Lord, by doing these miracles, miracle after miracle, uh, healing people, raising people from the dead. And, and so they are stirred up now, right? They're stirred up. And as Jesus comes in riding on this donkey, they are recognizing him as king, right? They're recognizing him as the son of David. He is the king. They're excited. They're celebrating. But they are not recognizing him as the prince of peace. They're wanting him as their mighty warrior. They're, they're receiving Jesus as a conqueror. A warrior king. Who come to free them from the oppression of the Romans. Many of those gathered there received Jesus as a king to rid them from Gentile oppression and give them a life of prosperity. That's what they were looking for. They were looking for a life of prosperity. We see this in an Old Testament apocryphal writing, that is a false writing. It, it was a, they had a, a number of, there's a number of apocryphal writings that came from the time prior to the New Testament age and they're false writings, right? We recognize that they're not part of God's holy inspired in their word, but they, they come out of uh, excuse me, Jewish tradition, religious tradition. And, and so from them, we can kind of learn what was the mindset of Jews in this era. So Psalm, a Psalm of, of Solomon, 17, 23 through 27, if you have an apocryphal handy, uh, it reads this, See, O Lord, and rise up, raise up their king for them, a son of David, for the proper time that you see God to rule over Israel, your servant, and undergird him with strength to shatter unrighteous rulers. Notice this, cleanse Jerusalem from the nations that trample it in destruction to expel sinners from the inheritance in wisdom, in righteousness, to rub out the arrogance of the sinner like a potter's vessel, to crush all their support with an iron rod, to destroy lawless nations by the word of his mouth, for Gentiles to flee from his face at his threat, and to reprove sinners by the word of their heart. You see, the people of Israel, they failed to see Jesus. They failed to see Jesus for who he was and what he was there to do. They failed to see what Jesus offered them was far greater, far greater than what they desired for him. You see, it is a tragedy if you receive Jesus as a warrior king rather than the Prince of Peace. It is a tragedy if you receive Jesus as a warrior king, rather than a Prince of Peace. He, he, Jesus, see, is not a warrior king. Not in this coming. He is not the warrior king to give you health and wealth and prosperity. He is not here to conquer all of your worldly troubles. That's not his intention, not in this go-around, right? Not in his first coming. But he is a prince of peace 
who makes peace between you and God by the shedding of his blood on Calvary's cross. They were looking for the mighty warrior king who would expel the Gentiles, but Jesus is the prince of peace who not only offered the Jews peace with God, providing peace with God because of their sin, but he also offered that same peace to the Gentiles, to the Romans, who the Jews hated so much. He is the Prince of Peace. And we need to understand that. So many people today, they look for Jesus to be the conquering warrior. Conquer my foes. Bring me riches. Bring me prosperity. Give me health. That's what they want. But Jesus offers something so much better than that. You see, because we got a greater problem than poverty. We've got a greater problem than sickness. We got this problem. It's called a sin problem. And our sin has separated us from God. Because of our sin, we are enemies before the Lord. And God has no, no option but to crush his enemies. But Jesus comes as the Prince of Peace. And by the blood of his cross, he conquers our sin, our guilt, and he makes peace with us, between us and God. So that now we can have a relationship with God. So that God's no longer our judge who, who, who stands to conquer us and destroy us. But now God is our loving Father. Whom we can approach in peace. It was tragic for the Israelites because they received Jesus as the warrior prince. And not the prince of peace. I wonder, how have you received Jesus? How have you received Jesus? As the great king who will give you all your heart's desire, or the prince of peace who offers you peace with God? One day, Jesus will come as a great and mighty warrior king to establish his eternal kingdom in heaven and on earth. But now, praise be to God, he comes as the Prince of Peace. Have you received him as the Prince of Peace? As we continue on and look at verse 9, notice what it says there. And the crowds that went before him, that followed him, were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when we think about that word, Hosanna, we think of it as a praise, right? We sing it in songs. Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We sing it as a, a word of praise. But you know what? In the Old Testament, this, this word here is actually a transliteration. Hosanna is a transliteration of an Old Testament term, a, he, a Hebrew term which means to save, 
to deliver. We see this exemplified for us in 2 Samuel chapter 14, 4. When the woman of Tekoa came to King David, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage to him and said, Save me, O king! Hosanna, O king! Hosanna is a cry out of desperation. Save me! Save me! See, that's that's the meaning of the term. Save me! But now think of it in the context of of this verse, right? In the context of Matthew. As the people are coming out, Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Oh yeah, they're saying save me, save me. But, But you see this term, Hosanna has lost its meaning. They're not saying Hosanna out of heart of humility. Save me out of a heart of desperation. Save me. They're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. You see, it's become a political slogan rather than a plea for mercy. It's become a political slogan, just like we might think of God bless America. Right, you see, God bless America. On the the lips of a Christian, it could be a humble prayer. Oh, Lord God, bless America. Turn her around. Lord, let her see your glory. Let her turn and follow you. Bring revival in America. You see, it can be a humble cry, a humble prayer. But you know what? How do we hear God bless America so often today? While we hear it on the, the lips of so many politicians, they'll talk about we need to, to uphold abortion rights. We need to normalize homosexuality, transgenderism. We need to do all of these things that are against God's word. And they'll end that speech with God bless America. God bless America just like she is. Don't change anything about her, God, but pour out your blessings on her regardless. God bless America despite of all of her sins. In fact, God bless America in her sins. Bless her sins, right? Uphold her sins. That's the way we see God bless America. It's a political slogan. People will pronounce that because, oh, yeah, hey, we'll get a good applause out of that. But it's not heartfelt. It's not a humble plea. It's a political slogan, just like the Israelites. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed to the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They were just shouting a a political political slogan. Jesus was just a, a slogan for what they wanted. Oh, yes, Lord, come. Come, take out the Gentiles, take out our oppressors, but don't mess with the way we got things going. Don't mess with our sin. Don't mess with the status quo. Don't change our lives. Just change what we want you to change. Let us, let us have our checklist of things that you can change. Let You change those things. You, you, you fulfill all of our wants and our desires, Lord, but you leave everything else alone. You do it the way we want you to do it, not how you have planned for it to be done. You see, it is a tragedy if you receive Jesus as a slogan for salvation rather than sovereign Savior. 
it's a tragedy if you receive Jesus as a slogan for salvation rather than the sovereign Savior. You see, many people, they love to sing, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. But Jesus, don't mess with my sin. Don't confront my sin, Lord. I, I don't want to change anything, Lord. I, I don't want to change anything. I, I don't want to have to repent. I don't want to have to turn away from, from living uh, away from you. I don't want to have to change anything. I, I don't want to have to repent. Just let me say my sinner's prayer. Let me get my fire insurance. And then, Lord, you just let me live like I want to live. But salvation comes when we repent, when we turn away from our sin, right? When we are confronted with our sin, when we're confronted with our rebellion, when we see the vileness of our sin and say, oh Lord, I deserve death. I deserve your judgment. And we repent from that. We turn away from that lifestyle of sin. And we turn to Jesus and say, Save me, Jesus. Save me, Jesus. I can't do it without you. I need your salvation. Save me, Jesus. And when Jesus saves us, he starts to change us. He's not going to leave us in our sin. He's not going to leave us in the hog waller of our sin. He's going to pick us up. He's going to clean us off. And he's going to change our lives. Salvation comes when we turn away from our sin. When we desire Jesus to change our lives, to transform us, to make us like him. It is tragic if you receive Jesus only as a slogan of salvation. Say that sinner's prayer just so you can get that fire insurance. Rather than sovereign savior. Rather than turning away from following after the devil and turn to follow Jesus Christ and surrender your life to him as Lord. Man, have you ever been confronted with the ugliness of your sin? Have you ever realized your desperate need for a savior? Have you ever turned away from your sinful lifestyle and turned to Jesus and cried out, Lord Jesus, save me. The last two verses, as we continue on here, the last two verses reveal a, yet another tragedy in the crowd's reception of Jesus. And this is perhaps most tragic of all. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd says, said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. Of Galilee. The question is, who is this? 
Who is this Jesus? And the answer, he's just a man. Just a prophet. Just an old fellow from Nazareth. Just an ordinary, everyday man who happens to be well-spoken, who happens to have a good ministry. I'm reminded of John 1, 46, where Nathaniel, right? Philip comes to Nathaniel. Hey, we found the Messiah. We found the Christ. The Christ has come. And Nathaniel says, well, who is he? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And that's who they say. This is just, he's a prophet. He's a, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. He's just a man. It's tragedy if you receive Jesus as a simple prophet, a good teacher, rather than the very Son of God. You see, many people receive Jesus as a good man who taught some really good lessons, right? Some really good lessons, some good moral lessons. We, we can live by Jesus' teaching. You see people on TV all the time talking about how good his moral teachings were. But they put him right there on the scale, right beside Buddha and Gandhi and all of these other great philosophers of the world. They say Jesus is a good teacher. However, as C.S. Lewis argues, no one can say that Jesus was simply a good man or a good teacher. Jesus doesn't leave that option open to us. In his book, Mere Christianity, Lewis rightly says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a, a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any uh, patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Jesus is either a lunatic, a liar, or he is Lord. That's the only options we have. Because Jesus clearly proclaimed that he was the Son of God. I am and the Father are one, Jesus said. Jesus proclaimed to be the very Son of God. So you either receive him as Lord or pass him off as a liar or a lunatic. 
but you can't just accept him as a good moral teacher. How have you received Jesus? Jesus is only triumphant in your life if you receive him as God's own son and Lord of your life. Jesus' entry into your life, my friend, is only triumphant if you receive Jesus for who he is and for what he has done for you on Calvary's cross and on Resurrection Sunday. So many people try to make Jesus out to be something else. The health and wealth, the whole prosperity, gospel people try to make him out to be the key to success in this life. So many people try to make Jesus something else. But Jesus is the Prince of Peace, the Son of God, who died on the cross for your sins, who paid the penalty for your sins in your place, and who was raised again, showing that all your sin had been paid for. And you either receive him as Lord of your life, are you passing him off as a liar or a lunatic? The decision is yours. How have you received Jesus? Oh, Heavenly Father. Lord, as we see Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, we also see that Jesus saw this as a tragedy. A tragic moment because so many of the people there before him failed to see him for who he was. Many today, Lord, see Jesus as many things, but they fail to see Jesus for who he is and what he has done. Lord, open our hearts and our minds today. If there's any here who have struggled with that, let them see Jesus. Let them see Jesus. And let them receive Jesus in triumph over their sin and their shame. Let them turn to Jesus as Lord of their life surrendering to him and lord for all of us who have received you as lord lord let us not fall into any worldly traps but lord let us always focus on you let us know you for who you are and what you have done And not what so many in the world try to sell you as. Teach us, O Lord, I pray. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.